Hi, I'm Nathan Ryder and welcome to the Viva Survivors podcast, where I talk to PhD graduates about their research, their Viva and life after the PhD. This is episode 23 and today I'm talking to Dr. Peter Roller, PhD graduate from Nottingham Trent University, who had his Viva in December 2013. Peter's research was multidisciplinary, encompassing computing and maths education, and he completed it part-time over a total of nine years. I talked to him about his research and his viva and how he prepared for it. It's, it's really great to have you on the podcast today, Peter. Thank you. Hello. To start us off, can you tell us a bit about your research that you did for your PhD? I did a my PhD was in it ended up being in a computing department, although the topic, as far as I'm concerned, was uh, mathematics education, and it was sort of about using technology in math education. I mean, to tell you too much about it, I have to start. I feel like it's one of these very long and boring stories that you know in in the beginning. Um, <laughs> but I'll try and summarise quickly. But so I did a maths degree uh, originally, and I did bits of computer science modules along the way, a little bit of programming and things like that. And then when I finished my maths degree I didn't really know what I did, wanted to do and I signed up to do a computing master's degree and there was a little gap between the two so the 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 master's degree was the January start so there was sort of the autumn with with nothing to do and it happened that my tutor at university had a little project in in sort of mathematics e-learning that he he wanted someone to work on and he remembered that I'd done these computing modules and and had done all right in them so he asked me if I would work on that so that kind of got me started on the on the sort of math education uh, route, I suppose. And then when I came to do my dissertation for my MSc, um, you were you were basically invited to propose a topic that you would work in, and I proposed something in in e assessment in mathematics, so in you know using computers to assess mathematics at university. And the MSc people found me a mathematician to supervise that, and uh, and off I went. And then I got to the end of that and still didn't really know what to do. But I quite I was quite enjoying the topic. We sort of arranged that I would do a PhD, essentially continuing the work, same supervisor, um, and and the chap in charge of the MSc agreed to be the second supervisor. So I ended up with a supervisor in mathematics, who was a, a sort of a teacher in mathematics, I suppose. But his main research topic was maths. And then I had a second supervisor who was in computing, and he had an interest in e-learning, but he didn't really know much about teaching mathematics. But sort of between the three of us, we probably had enough knowledge kicking about to uh, to make the thing happen. Um, so that, that that was how it started out. But then I, I mean, the idea basically was that in computing, I would I would develop a thing, and then we would test it with my supervisor's class because he was teaching. I mean, for a long time, I had far too many interests, <laughs> <laughs> and I sort of struggled to get focused. Although I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. But you sort of end up with, oh, I could do this, oh, I could do that, oh, I could do this. And then you realize a lot of time has passed and you've read a lot of stuff, but you, you're not really quite clear on, on where you're going. And then I guess halfway through, my um, my supervisor retired, my first supervisor. Oh, I should have said I did this in part-time mode. So the, the arrangement that we made was I was, I was part-time and self-funded. And there was a job at the university that was part-time that was a, a sort of e-learning technical role um, that I took. And that would pay for the... Um, you know, for my living and, and, and for the, there was a little bit of a fee waiver because I then was a member of staff at the university and things like that. So that, sure. that all worked quite well. Anyway, halfway through, my supervisor retired. My second supervisor took over 
but of course he wasn't a maths teacher, maths lecturer, so I lost access to the guinea pigs. I, you know, I lost access to the students. Anyway, I ended up I suspended for a year because essentially we'd we'd bought a house and we we had a fixed rate for it's very boring, but we had a fixed rate for three years and that was about to come to an end. So the payments were going to go up an awful lot. And um, my employer, the unit that I was working for was closing down, so that was not going to be available anymore. So basically, I suspended it for a year to work full time to try and get some money to to pay for everything. <laughs> and um, to be honest, I thought I probably wouldn't go back because it was sort of it was sort of all falling apart, really. I suppose. Anyway, and I I did a little bit of teaching at the university. This is the thing that really changed everything because I'd had no idea really what I wanted to do. Um, but at some point, somebody well, my my first supervisor came up to me and said you know, we've got this module that needs teaching. Are you interested? And I sort of said, oh, I suppose so. I'll give it a go. <laughs> but I yeah. really liked it and I really enjoyed that. So that I'm really glad he did that because it was just one of those things that you just, I don't think I would have put myself forward. But the fact that somebody sort of said to me, I think you might be interested. In it, I saw myself much more in a, in a sort of learning support role than I did in a sort of frontline teaching role. Um, largely because I didn't like standing up in front of people and talking, to be honest. Um, but no, I really enjoyed that. I really took to it. And of course, then to be a lecturer, you should, you, you, you know, you ought to have a PhD these days. Um, and then this whole global financial crisis business meant that the interest rate dropped considerably. So suddenly our mortgage became a lot more affordable again. <laughs> so at the end of this year off, I went back and, 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 you know, to finish the thing. So I came back. I had my, my second supervisor now. My first supervisor has left. And he was still around, and I still see him now, but he was, he was not directly involved. So then my second supervisor and I, we sat down and had a, a proper serious look at what I was going to do. And we tried to work on, you know, an actual achievable plan. Never mind any of this. You're interested in this. You're interested in that. We tried to come up with something very very particular that we could do. And I, I'm, I sort of feel like that first stage was part of the process, but, and I guess that was necessary, but the real, really what I did for my PhD happened this second half, I suppose. So that instead of it being a technical PhD where I do something using technology in, in maths assessment, it became much more about me, about my development as a teacher in higher education. Um, so that I would develop an approach and then use it in my own teaching. And this would be somehow using technology and assessment. But yeah, a lot more of it. I don't want to say, I'm trying to avoid saying my journey, but you know, my my development. <laughs> I, I think that's a good word to use. Oh, I think that's a great word to use in relation to a PhD. <laughs> it sounds very reality TV, doesn't it? But I mean, as a teacher, you know, me becoming a teacher became the sort of topic, principally, I suppose, the thread that held the thing together. And I'd seen this, I'd looked at, because the, the university now has a... Um, an electronic repository of, of theses. So I'd looked at some theses in science, and of course they're they're very different from what I was doing. And then I looked at some in the School of Education, and I saw quite a few that were like this, that were sort of people who were already lecturers who felt they ought to be getting a PhD, who then who then sort of went on this on this sort of discovery um, approach. And I was quite attracted to that, I suppose. I mean, basically, the, what the actual research was ended up being. Um, e-assessment, which is which is where the computer sets questions and, and marks them, basically, that's pretty good for mathematics because, well, certainly for routine work in mathematics, because there's a clear correct answer, and you can randomise the numbers in a question, and then you get a different question. So every student can be given completely different questions from the person next to them, and that's either 
because you're worried about plagiarism, you're worried about them copying off one another, or so that the same student can practice questions over and over again. They can just keep reloading it and they get quite different questions. So that that's yeah. basically what the assessment is good for. But that is of somewhat limited use when it comes to deeper learning. So things like, well, you, you know, you're trying to generate, um, develop graduate skills. Um, you're trying to do more open-ended work. There's no correct answer that a computer can mark and things like that. And then the assessment becomes a lot less useful. So I suppose what I did first of all was investigated the assessment what people thought it would be good for um I, I you know i did a, a sort of proper systematic literature review read you know defined some search parameters in various databases and read a hundred odd papers on the subject did a proper literature review and i also did a survey i did some interviews and a questionnaire of people who are using and people who are not using the assessment about what they thought about it yeah. and that's basically the first half of my work the first half of my thesis and then what i did was i developed a partially automated approach because I reckon that assessment is is good for setting randomized questions, particularly for plagiarism, but then you're limited by what it can mark. So I took an approach where I used an e-assessment system to set my questions, but then I marked them. So um, and then uh, that sort of required a context. So I got involved with teaching a, a graduate skills development module, which was basically group work, group projects. The problem with group or one problem with group work is that often one student will be carried by the group so that everybody gets the mark from the group work, but maybe different students contribute to different amounts to that work. Yeah. And that's difficult. And this was a final year module, so it's especially difficult because it contributes a good chunk to the um, the overall degree class. So what I wanted there to be an element in this in this module of individual work on the same topic so that we could try and get some feel for whether each member of the group had actually contributed to the overall to the overall mark. Um, but basically what this meant was I, I wanted to set, I don't know, three questions to the group to answer as a group and one question that they would answer individually. Okay. And so the, the temptation to do that fourth question also as a group must be huge, you know, because you want it to be yeah. close to the other three questions because you want to check that they're they're contributing to that topic. So so you end up now I could set a test like a class test or I could do an e-assessment where everybody gets a different question. But the nature of the work meant that neither was really very, very suitable. So the, the timed condition of an exam type environment didn't suit it at all and it couldn't really be marked by computer. So I thought this was a good opportunity to, to essentially to use my approach. So I, I, uh, I, yeah, I set a piece of work using the computer and then I marked it by hand, meaning it as a, as a method for reducing plagiarism. Um, and then, of course, then I evaluated this. Has it worked to reduce plagiarism? Has it done what I wanted with regard to individual contribution to group work and, and all that? And basically, that was the second half of my thesis. So yeah. that, then the thread that went over all of it was was me developing and essentially me changing from starting out as a, a sort of naive technology enthusiast trying to just apply technology to teaching because it seems like a good idea to me sort of shifting to a an approach where I'm I'm looking at it and thinking is there a need for the technology and what could the technology do that you know so I mentioned this approach I think worked quite well and a test would not you know a class test would not have worked quite well so that would be the traditional approach okay but I can get use for the technology so I think I'm I'm more being led by the need than I was by my enthusiasm perhaps at the start so that, that that's the sort of that's how my thesis ended up being, uh, which I think is a little bit weird for some for some areas, but particularly in education, it seems to be quite appropriate that you you know you are uh, you know that you are involved in the research in that way, I suppose. So the output of it all 
uh, of your your PhD research was uh, was it one system or was it several different systems that support this kind of, these kind of classroom um, tests or yeah well I ended up that I, I did do some work initially on on trying to write something myself and I got something that basically would have done what I wanted and then I I sort of went public with this and said I, I did a little YouTube video and said look I've made this thing and now I need some teachers to test it out because I felt like I could do it with my students but if I could do it with other people's that would be more scientific I suppose I was still on that yeah on that approach and and, and someone I know who developed an assessment system uh, at Newcastle University called called Christian Perfect emailed me and said my system could do that why don't you use it <laughs> and, and basically his system i mean it took some tweaking he had to he had to tweak a few things but he could see that the way he designed his system he could fairly easily you know bolt on an additional layer that would do what i wanted to do which was basically to create these printable worksheets um, okay. And and of course, the advantage of that is that his system was more sophisticated than my hacked together thing, and it had been tested with users. That's the main yeah. advantage. So I ended up, and that's where I was transitioning from, rather than me developing something and finding some volunteers who would try it out in their teaching. It became much more about me as the user of technology rather than me as the developer of technology. I suppose. So I ended up I ended up using that system. Um, so I ended up with, in my thesis with a, with a chapter that basically said, look, I did do some programming and stuff, but in the end I didn't use it. But I am capable, because <laughs> I felt like it's a confusing thing. <laughs> I am capable. I to show that, you know. Um, but in the end, it was it was much more sensible approach to, to use the system that, that already existed. Yeah, sure. So you mentioned that you were, um, you did your PhD part-time uh, at Nottingham Trent. How well, how was that in general? Because I've had a couple of people on the podcast before who've who've done their PhD part time. I think it it sounds like they've 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 also used the the word journey to describe what they've been through to get their PhD, but also it, it's a a challenge as well. So is is that something you found? Yes, definitely. I mean, it's very it's very I suppose it's good for me, but I, it is hard to properly compartmentalize these things because if you work for two and a half days and then which is what I started out doing then on Wednesday lunchtime I stop work and I start doing my PhD it's very hard not to let the one thing bleed into the other um, and of course there's a difference between what is urgent and what is important and if you're yeah. doing a part-time I mean the part-time PhD was supposed to be it's supposed to take between six and eight years I think something like that in Nottingham Trent and mine took nine because I took the, the year off in the middle so because the deadline is literally years away and then at work you've got to get this thing done by next week, it's very easy to suddenly swallow all your time into the into the immediate task. Yeah. And not really and so it's very hard to stop yourself and say, No, look, I'm gonna be very keen very firm on this and, and particularly in something like um something like a university where everybody you know, everything leaks, everybody sending emails at the weekend and in the evenings and things like that and to say no 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 I'm not going to do that because in the evenings and weekends I'm working on my PhD and not on the other days of the week where I'm not working I'm, I'm working I find that quite quite difficult and there were times although I said I paused my PhD for a year to work full-time um, I came back and I still worked for full-time for a couple of years um, on it which was which was hard but obviously very good for the for the income so so I ended up where I I, I basically worked my full-time job, I worked eight till six in order to get it done in only four and a bit days, whatever that works out as, so that I had some time on a Friday and then I took a day at the weekend to work on the PhD. Um, and, and I mean, that is, 
you know, quite a discipline and, <laughs> and it quite quite exhausting, I suppose. You've got to be careful what else you're doing in your life. Yeah. And, uh, apart from that, I mean, it's it's just, it is different. You don't necessarily, you know, have an office that you go into. You don't necessarily, you know, I mean, I knew other PhD students because when I, when I started, well, I suppose, yeah, when I started, when I wasn't too far and they had me on these sort of induction and training type events. So I met a cohort of PhD students then. But of course, those people all graduated and left before I was finished. <laughs> so I, yeah. and then by the time I finished my PhD, the, the current lot of PhD students, I didn't really know any of. So that's a little bit strange that the sort of the world passes you by while you, while you're kind of there, but you're kind of not there. And, and mm. yeah, finding a nice place to work was, was difficult. And again, I was quite keen that I, I worked from home when I was working on my PhD so that I, I wasn't sat in the office at work. And people couldn't come in and say, oh, actually, could you just do this for me since you're here? You know, I, on the days where they weren't paying me, I didn't want to be there for that leakage reason, I suppose. Yeah. So, yes. I mean, practically quite difficult. And also just over a long time period is difficult. I remember somebody, not long after I started, actually, somebody said to me, oh, part time is hard. And he, he, he told me that he knew someone who had done, now I forget the details, but their PhD, it was something to do with programming in MS-DOS. And they basically handed in the same time that I think the way it was told to me, it was the same day uh, that Windows 95 was released. <laughs> their, their PhD was immediately, you know, <laughs> old hat and, and, and surpassed by this uh, oh, no. age of technology. And I, I sort of listened to that and ha ha, that's, that's, well, of course, that's not going to happen to me. And then as time goes on, you think, oh, actually, because what I did in my master's degree, which was about essentially putting parameters into questions and randomizing them and how you display them on a web page. I mean, it was, I don't want to say I was the first person to do that, but it was, it was sufficiently cutting edge to be worth a master's dissertation. But by now, that's completely obvious old hat you can anyone can do that yeah. that's absolutely fine and there's a little bit of that that the stuff i was doing right at the start of my phd is now so routine that it wouldn't be worth a phd now and i found that yeah. hard to to struggle with because you're supposed to do something that's novel and, and blah 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 but you could start out you set out a plan the university approves your plan you have a transfer partway through I, I started on mphil transfer to phd that route and they approved the transfer but then by the time of the viva if i'd handed in what i'd said i was going to do at the start then that question about what is novel about your work, I would not have been able to answer because it needed to change as time went on. So that that's that's a, pro a problem. It's sort of a part-time problem. It's really a timescale problem, I suppose. Yeah, of course. Mm. So let's let's move forward in time then because your Viva was uh, December last year, December 2013. I think from our correspondence before the, before the podcast, you mentioned that you... Did you submit in July 2013? Yes. Is that right? So what happened? Um, I suppose, what did you do in the the five months between in mm. terms of preparation? I'm, I'm guessing you didn't immediately start preparing for your Viva in August. No, not at all. Well, I, I, I sort of handed in, and it was July. And then I I, I contacted the internal. We, we, we basically arranged that the, the exit... So I, Every time I try and say something, I want to go back to an earlier. <laughs> my, my, I think my research is there are people who do maths education research, which is very theoretical and perhaps comes from a, a psychology of how people learn type of point of view or something like that. And I feel that what I'm trying to do is very practitioner based. So it's very much that I'm interested in maths education as a research topic because I want to improve my teaching. And we chose an external examiner who is a professor of mathematics 
educational math teaching and learning or something like that but uh, who comes I think from the same sort of approach so he was the external and then the internal was somebody in computing with an interest in education because it was a computing PhD really so to try and get that balance we had an education person in a and a computing person. Um, anyway, so I emailed the um, the internal the day after I handed in, and I said, "Look, I've handed in. We're all teaching in the autumn, so why don't we try and get this thing done in in September? Because then we can get it out of the way before we. Because if we're all teaching, we're going to really find it hard to schedule the Viva, and I've got to find time to prepare and things like this." And uh, and he basically replied and said, "Oh, I go on holiday tomorrow, and I'm not back until mid September, which you know a lot of people do in, in academia. So it's like, oh, okay, so we're not going to do that then. And I, uh, so so I basically waited, and of course the research office said, oh yeah, usually you've done your viva within within three months of of handing in. I mean, three months from handing in, I didn't know the date yet, <laughs> so I got the date I think in October for a viva in December. As you say is now uh, four months ago. So 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 by October I was I was lecturing. I'd, I'd in the final year of my PhD, I thought, like, I really seriously got to get myself together, get this thing written. So when I, I had a job that was full time for two years running up to um, autumn, well, summer 2012. And then that last year I intended, I, in an ideal world, I would have done nothing, you know, and concentrated on, on the writing. But that's not realistic in terms of the finances. Um, so what I did was I, I managed to get a couple of um, part time teaching gigs you know at different two different universities uh, which yeah. kept me occupied for two or three days a week and then and then the rest of the time I could do the viva and although that's a financial thing that's also really very a very good thing to do isn't it because I've you're doing work you're you're developing your skills you're developing your repertoire and all that so that 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 is all a good thing to do I suppose if I just done my my viva I wouldn't have been I wouldn't have been so good at it I suppose anyway yeah. and so um then I think in the January of 2013, they offered me a job doing the teaching because somebody left at Christmas. So I took over, I, I took over their module in November in anticipation of them um, leaving. And, and they said, would you, would you come on and, and it could be part time. And then there was a little suggestion that it might be full time. And I said, no, 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 I really can't work full time and write the fire up at the same time. That's <laughs> So, so we agreed that I would work three days a week, which is more than I wanted to, really. So I ended up still doing, you know, one or often two days at the weekend as well as in order to get the, the thing written, I suppose. And, and, and so basically I did, I did a, almost a year of teaching this module, but from a very much, I took it over in November and then every week you're sort of running to stand still in terms of preparing the teaching for next week. So, so yeah. over the summer they agreed to extend me. For a year and they actually wanted to make me full-time so I know I know full-time um, so I basically spent that summer I had a few weeks off and then I, I um, rewrote my module because I wanted to get the notes in order I wanted to get everything sorted out and I could see various things that were that needed improving with it so I I basically did that and I didn't think about the, the vibe because I just thought until I've got a date for it then what can I do really yeah Oh, no, in October, I got the date. And so then, I, ideally, you think, well, it's October, my vibe is in two months, I better start preparing for it. But actually, the first thing I did was I spent, I tried very hard to get myself ahead of the game in terms of my teaching preparation, I had to write my exam paper and all things like this, basically to draw things forward away from the Viva date and away from corrections time. Because if I have the Viva and then three months corrections, I've got to, I've got to make room for that stuff. Um, and then about four weeks before, I, I started rereading the Viva. I did try and read some advice. I, I read your book 
Um, and, oh, I, great. <laughs> and I listened to this podcast. Uh, my friend uh, Julia Collins was was interviewed on it. Oh yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. I sort of remembered that that she'd mentioned that, so I I, I found you um, and, and listened to just to try and get an idea of what the vibe would be like because I I really had no idea. Um, and and one of your earlier interviews linked to some academic papers about what happens in a viva. Um, so I read those. One of those had some sample questions of the sort of things that get asked. And I had a book, which I don't know how I found it, but I had a book that had some advice for. So, so the the paper in particular was I've just written a, a note down here, but it's it's Trafford 2003 questions in a doctoral questions in doctoral vivas views from the inside was the paper and then there's a book uh-huh. which is Phillips and Pew 2010 called How to Get a PhD a handbook for students and their supervisors and I think someone at the university had recommended that anyway they both had sample questions so I kind of made myself a list of what seemed to be likely questions and then answered them to myself by typing in a document um, you know I wrote these questions out and then I typed answers as a sort of way of trying to process some of the more obvious questions that might come up. I read the web pages of my examiners, looked at what their research interests were. I, I knew them both reasonably well from going to conferences and things like this. I, I, I looked at what papers they'd published and I read a couple that seemed to be in a in the right sort of area. I mean, I did quote the external examiner quite a bit in my in my work, but I, I want to just get clear on what, what their interests might be and I suppose what their take on these topics might be as well. Oh, I I got all sort of nervous about the thing, and I didn't like I didn't like bits that I don't understand or that aren't familiar to me. So my my viva had an independent chair as well as the two examiners, and I didn't know the independent chair. Sort of felt like that's an unknown, and I'm not really sure what that's going to be like. And and anyway, two uh, two days before my viva, he was due to give a research seminar, and he's an analytical chemist, so it's a little bit mathematical. Uh, anyway, so I went to that, and you know he seemed a likable chap. <laughs> so that put me at ease quite a lot um, feeling that there wasn't this sort of unknown presence in the room that I didn't know what to expect and the other unknown factor I went and sat in the room where the viva was going to be so I, okay. I literally went and sat there and tried to be calm and about a week before the viva um, but I just thought I'd be less nervous if I, was, if I knew what was going on and of course I reread yeah. the thesis so one thing I'd done when I was writing the thesis was I made an outline document which was, it was based on an earlier draft, so it wasn't based on the final version in the end. But what I did was I was sort of struggling to, to put it in the right sort of order. And I'd had this piece of advice on a paper that I'd written where you write, basically where you make a table and you have a row for each paragraph. And so for each paragraph of my thesis, I wrote the section number, a short note, which basically said what the point of that paragraph was. Because when you're writing, a paragraph ought to be about, an, you know, each paragraph a single idea. If you've got too many things in one paragraph, you should probably break it up into several. Um, and if you've got paragraphs that aren't making a decent point, you might get rid of them, sort of thing. And then I made a third column that was a cross-reference to where that pays off. Because I was very concerned with introducing stuff in the literature review that's never used again. So for each thing that I, I, I sort of went through and I said, here's what the point of this paragraph is, and that's then needed in section seven when I talk about this thing. And I went yeah. through, I found that very helpful for structuring the thesis and clearing up the flow of what I was trying to say. And my intention was that I would update this to the current version of my thesis, and that would be a good exercise to get me familiar with the material again. Uh, but I didn't have time. Um, so what yeah. I did was I wrote a short summary. And I don't know if this came from the Phillips and Pew book, but I definitely read it somewhere. 
Um, and I basically made a, made a document, split the page into two columns. So you basically got half lines. Well, each line was half the page, I suppose. That was. So and then yeah. I wrote one on each half line. I wrote page number and then a couple of words just saying what the main idea of that page was. So you can perhaps fit eight words on a line. And I try very hard to squeeze everything in, although some of them took far fewer than that. And I just went through the whole thing. So there were, there were 183 lines, 183 half lines for my 183 pages. <laughs> so that ends up being about a page and a half of A4. But that, just, that was something to do while I was rereading it that sort of got me to process the information. The problem with reading something that you've written is that you just switch off, I think. Yeah. So that got me doing something useful. And, I mean, for example, I can tell you now that the main idea on page 33 is that short pieces of course work are at risk of plagiarism. And page 34 says that longer open-ended pieces of work are less likely to have this problem. <laughs> yeah. Because that's something that it says in my document. And it meant that I had this sort of, well... I think the advice that I had, as I'd read it was then if in the Viva they say, so, you know, do you argue this or that, you can sort of flick down this document and say, look, I do pages, whatever to whatever is where I'm discussing yeah. that topic. And then you, so it's a sort of nice, easy navigation thing, although I didn't in the end use it in the Viva. Um, yeah. But I did. I've not, yeah. I'm sorry, I've not come across that before, but that seems like a really neat idea. To, to have that, I think so, because it really helped me process the thing. And actually, what I did was I, I didn't use it in the Viva, but I read it that morning. You know, I flipped yeah. through the documents so that it was all sort of fresh. Because there's so much in your thesis that you can't you can't keep it all at once. I don't think you sort of no. lose bits of the detail and you forget what order things were in and things like that. So this was a yeah, I quite like that, that as an idea. Yeah, and then of course I annotated the thesis is the other thing that I did. Yeah. So I find that I skim read very slowly. So what I did was, as I was reading it through, I just kept underlining the key point. You know, this is an important point. This is an emphasis in that sentence. So that if I needed to quickly skim read, then the relevant bit would jump out at me. Um, and yeah. I stuck loads of little bookmark stickers where the where the research questions were and where each chapter started and things like that, just to help me navigate. If it came to it in the um, in the Viva, then I could. I can sort of find, I, I also put a, a sticker where each of what I thought were the controversial bits were, so that, again, if, if they start asking me about that, I can just quickly flip it open to the right point. So what happened on the day, then, in December? Right. <laughs> so I, um, I, well, I, 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 the vibe was at one, which I don't know if that's, is that quite usual? I, uh, I don't know. Mine was, uh, mine was 10 o'clock in the morning. Was it? Okay. Yeah. I didn't really like that it was one o'clock, because I'd, I'd got myself in the, when I was writing at the Viva, I'd sort of, you sort of learn to understand and forgive yourself your, your <laughs> problems. But I, one thing that I knew was that I worked quite well in the morning until about 12 and then I got hungry and then I ate something. And then I was basically rubbish until about three. And then <laughs> I was sort of three until seven, eight, nine, whenever I finished. But I sort of learned to accept that that middle of the day I had a slump and everything went wrong and I would write slowly and it would be rubbish. And what I'd do is I'd just go and sit and watch telly for that for that period because what I found was that if I if I pressed on through and I thought I've got to put in the hours I've got to get this thing written what I did was I did junk work for three hours and I exhausted myself doing it so I sort of learned to yeah. accept so then when they put the vinyl right in that period I thought oh no <laughs> this is dreadful um, <laughs> but I mean by then of course I've been working so you've got to get yourself back into working whatever happens but when, when you're when you're writing the thesis up it's the most important thing is to get the thing written isn't it so yeah. uh, Anyway, so, so, so I, I got up, I sort of had a slow start, I reread my summary document, 
um, and a few of the notes that I've made for myself. I mean, I, I think I had a sort of big breakfast late rather than having lunch so that I wasn't so that I hadn't just eaten when the viva happened, really. And I made myself made my way up to uni and I sat in the staff. Room. I think I got there about an hour before the viva and I sort of sat and tried to calm down a bit in the staff room and talk to various people about, you know, how are you doing? What are you up to? Oh, I'm about to have my PhD viva. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and that sort of conversation um, and, yeah. and tried to sort of not arrive not arrive having just eaten and not arrive because I walked to work, not arrive having just marched up the hill to work and, and sort of give myself a fair chance, I suppose. That was quite good, I think. I didn't really know what to expect in terms of... So so I'd read, and I think it's on here as well, about the difference between a humanities pitch, a viva and a science viva. Um, and I'd, yeah. I'd read that science vivas tend to be longer and look more at the detail, and then humanities vivas tend to be shorter and a general discussion around the area. And this is the advice I'd read. Now, I'm doing an education topic in a science department, so I have no idea where on that spectrum I'm going to fall. So I didn't know what to expect. And uh, in the end, it was the, it was the humanities type. It was, the, it was short and it was general questions. So all this stuff that I'd done, putting, putting notes into my thesis so that if they asked me about this page, I know what to say, didn't really, they weren't that, that specific. But of course, I didn't know that um, in advance. Yeah, and then I then I went to the went to the room for the viva. So how long was your viva then? It's about an hour and a half all in, but that includes them telling okay. me about the questions. I think. I think after an hour, the independent chair said, "Perhaps we should just take a little break." So we took a little break, and then they asked me about maybe ten minutes more um, questions, and then the the external said, "Well, I'm out of questions now." Um, so perhaps we should have a, a, a discussion about it. So they they sort of kicked me out into the corridor. I wasn't sure whether to interpret that as we need to have a chat before we ask you more, more questions or whether that was it's over. <laughs> you know? So I just <laughs> didn't know what was happening, really. And then they brought me back in and, and I'd passed and, and some corrections, basically. So you said that they asked um, more general questions than perhaps you'd anticipated. So what, what sort of things were they asking you about? Was it about your literature review your background or all the kind of things that you've done there was a lot about the novelty so I was, okay. I was a bit worried about the novelty because this is something that i basically looked at the, um, the there are a set of assessment outcomes published for the for the phd and i talked to my supervisor about it and is he worried about any of these and the one that he said was novelty he said he's pretty sure i've done the rest of them about running a research project and getting independent work and establishing a body of knowledge in your area and blah 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 and, and except that he wasn't quite sure how I how I was arguing this, this point of novelty so there's a lot of that and I don't know the first so the first question they basically took turns the external examiner went first and the first question I don't remember what it was but it was something in, incredibly benign like can you tell me how the project developed as you were doing it? or something like that presumably just to get me talking yeah. and, and warm me up and then the second question from the internal basically uh, he said, what you claim is novel about your research is blah, but of course blah has been done before in this paper you've never seen. <laughs> that was, that was, that's essentially the nightmare question, isn't it? That's precisely yeah. what, you don't want to, what you don't want to hear. So I, um, yeah, I, I, and, and as it turns out, it was fine because essentially this, the, the lady who'd written the paper that he'd found, I'd quoted one of her, her collaborators on the same topic in a section that I had that was essentially work that is similar to mine and why it is different from mine. So I basically dealt with it. And I think actually I had read the paper, but I didn't recognize it because it was, it was quite a long time before. But of course I didn't know that at the time. So then I'm, 
I'm sort of saying, he's sort of saying, how is your work different from this work? And I'm sort of saying, could you tell me what this paper says? <laughs> because I haven't read it. And I, I, I offered, you know, should we take a recess and I'll go and read this paper and then we can come back and have a proper conversation about it. And, and we sort of argued back and forth for a while. Uh, and then the external moved things on. This is partly why I wasn't sure when he said, I've run out of questions, we need to have a little chat. This is why I thought, because I really didn't feel like we'd settled that question. Um, yeah. But in the end, they, that was one of the corrections was basically I had to explain why that work was different to mine, uh, which is it, yeah. when I'd read, I realized that's not I'd basically done that. I just hadn't used this paper to do that. So okay. that, that was an awful experience, because, of course, saying to someone, you haven't read this thing. How is your work different from it? It's just <laughs> it's, how am I supposed to answer that? I don't know. Yeah. Strange, very strange experience. Was was the vibe as stressful at all? I mean, that that sounds like it could be stressful, but was it stressful? Yeah, I found it very stressful. I mean, I got myself quite worked up beforehand, I suppose. And, yeah. But but yeah, that that in particular was a stressful <laughs> situation, I suppose, because you and I really felt like I sort of want these people to like me because they're they're supposed to be marking my thing, and then I'm actually just. I'm winding him up because I'm not answering his questions, but I don't know how to answer his questions because I haven't read this. And it felt like we were sort of yeah. on the verge of going from a from a discussion to an argument. And is that then a problem, you know, in terms of them marking me, I suppose. What happened in the Viva that was good then? Well, cause I'm not suggesting that wasn't good because mm-hmm. maybe, it, maybe there was, you know, it was quite interesting, actually. But if that was maybe a, a stressful point, what was not stressful? I don't know. I quite enjoyed talking with the external about how the work had developed and because it changed in its approach quite a lot as it went through and why had I chosen to do it this way and that way. Yeah. I was a bit nervous about a few things that were so, so about about a week before the Viva, somebody had said we were talking about because I had final year project students, you know, undergraduate project students that I supervised. And yeah. um, we'd been in a conversation about whether whether they can write in first person or whether they should write in third person. And one of the one of my colleagues had said, well, of course, they should write in third person. I mean, you wouldn't dream of having written your thesis in first person, would you? And I had written my thesis. And the reason for that is because uh, <laughs> essentially you write in third person, particularly in science, because what you're saying is I am a dispassionate observer. And what I am describing will be the same whether I've done it or whether you've done it. So I write in third person. I say this experiment was done because I'm not saying that I have any part in it particularly, except that I happen to be the one who's done it. Whereas mine, because it was because teaching is so much about your own, what you're bringing to the process. And, you know, you can say this method of teaching works. What you really mean is this method of teaching works for me with my personality and my approach. And it might not work for you. So I wrote it in first person because I felt that was entirely appropriate. And also because I had this stuff about my development and my changing outlook and all that. And it's very, very awkward trying to write that in third person. Um, but I, so I basically said that to the <laughs> people and I got a very sort of, I don't know, flat reaction to it. Because they obviously didn't want to say that's ridiculous a week before my viva. But they, they couldn't bring themselves to say anything positive about it. So that was <laughs> nervous. And I thought, I'm going to have to have this argument in the room. And then, and then the other thing was I'd, I'd submitted basically the second half of my, my thesis um, as a paper for peer review. And I got the peer reviewers' comments back a few days before the Viva, purely, well, by coincidence. Anyway, and, um, and one of the reviewers had said that a whole section that I'd done wasn't necessary and basically that I could rely on established results in the literature. 
I didn't think that was right. I, I, and in the end, actually, I, I argued back, uh, you know, I had a discussion with the editor and I said, here's why the established results that are being referred to are not appropriate for what I'm doing. Here's, and, and in the end, the paper got published with that section still in it. Okay. But in the meantime, I had my I, I was concentrating on my viva, so I didn't I didn't I, I sort of thought about it, but I didn't respond. So I didn't know the outcome yet. And again, I thought, well, if if this person's picked up on it, then perhaps the uh, the examiners are going to pick up on it. And um, so that was that was sort of two arguments that I felt I was going to have to have. And and neither thing came up in the viva. <laughs> they didn't find that I'd written the yeah. first person at all. And, and I'd actually written a little bit where I'd said why I'd done it in the introduction. I'd written a bit saying why I'd done it in first person. And they didn't think this at all about the um, using the, the established results. So I kind of felt on edge because I knew that these two arguments were probably coming and then these two arguments didn't come. So I guess yeah. even though there were some nice bits and we were sort of chatting back and forth about why I'd taken this approach and why I'd taken that approach, and I found that all quite enjoyable. At the same time, I still had in the back of my mind, first of all, I don't feel like we've settled this issue that's been raised as the second question. And I think these other two things are coming. So I, was, I guess I, overthinking it, I'd sort of got myself stressed uh, like that, yes. I think we're almost uh, out of time, but I just wanted to ask you, before I ask you the, the last couple of questions, I just want to ask you about having an independent chair, uh, mainly because this is something I've only come across recently in, in when I've looked at vivas and, and things like that. So I just wondered um, how that how that worked in practice in your viva. Yeah, I mean, it was it was interesting. I, I, I'd read about it because that, that paper that I mentioned, um, I think that yeah. it was a sort of, if I've got the right paper, I can't quite remember, but certainly one of the papers that I'd read, um, it was somebody who had, he was writing as someone who, had, or he or she, I can't remember, was writing as someone who had taken part in several vivas, in some, you know, a hundred vivas or something, and had made notes. And that was either as one of the examiners or as independent chair. So I knew that, I knew about this thing, I knew that this happened, I suppose. Um, and of course, we'd been told that that would be the format of the viva. Um, so basically, this guy was, was, in charge like you would chair a meeting I suppose um, so I yeah. arrived and he was the one who welcomed me he introduced me to the examiners which was ever so funny because of course I didn't know him but I did know the examiners <laughs> but anyway and um, and then he, he he had a bunch of stuff that he had to say and he had a sort of checklist that he was ticking off as he did it like has he explained you know explained the format of the vibe or explain what happens afterwards explain this explain that so he had this kind of checklist that he went down and then he basically he let the the examiners run the questioning and he only interjected i think i think essentially he's there for points of procedure and things like that so so if we needed to we should have consulted him but i mean we didn't and then and then he's the one who after an hour said look i think we should take a break now which of course when you're involved in this back and forth questioning you don't realize how much time has passed so i guess it was useful to have somebody yeah. else in the room who could who could keep track of that um so we didn't run on for a couple of hours without taking a break or something like that so that yeah. That, that was kind of useful. And then I, I don't know what he did um, in relation to the examiners. I think he's the one who brings them together. He gets them to agree what, how they're going to run the thing. And, and then afterwards, he yeah. gets them to agree the, uh, the paperwork about the corrections and things. Right, right. right. I think it would have been good in my viva if I'd had an independent chair because my viva was four hours long and we didn't yeah. take a break until about two and a half hours in. <laughs> right. um, but, and again, just like you said, you, know, you don't realise the time that's passing. Mm. 
and, I think the longest... and that break, I just all I did was I, I sort of walked around the room a little bit and had a Kit Kat, uh, but that was yep. probably good because it just gives you a little bit of energy and and and, and yep. breaks up the constant talking, I suppose. So you just have a moment yeah. to sort of relax your brain. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so to um, thanks for describing your your Viva and also for telling telling us about your PhD. Sure. Um, I've got two final questions to finish us off um, that I, I always ask on the podcast. Um, the first one being, uh, what advice would you give someone who was starting a PhD? Yes, I've heard people ask. <laughs> I've heard you ask this. It's a very awkward question. There's so many things. I mean, I think try and have an idea why you're doing it. Because I started off and I didn't really know why I was doing it. And I mean, that's fine and it's worked out fine. Fine. But I didn't really get properly focused until I decided that I'm doing it because I want to be a lecturer in mathematics and this is a way, this is a route, you know, you need to have a PhD to be doing that, you need to develop yourself as a teacher to do that. So it sort of gave me a good focus and I think that helps with the, you know, the mid-PhD depression crisis thing that everyone goes through. If you've got a strong yeah. reason for doing it, then, then that helps you get through it. But also allow yourself to be open to possibilities because I changed almost completely what I was doing along the way and that's as a result of you know go, going to staff listening to talks even if they're not entirely relevant talking to other people talking to other PhD students other researchers and, all, and just sort of gathering information and gathering contacts and, and people that you now know and things like it I think that all helps sort of feed into the into the process so yeah I, I would I would like to have had a good idea of why I was doing it and what I was doing but also allow myself to to be open to changes along the way Okay. And finally, what advice would you give someone who is preparing for their Viva? I've heard people say they did too much preparation and they regret having wasted the time. And I've heard people say they did no prep and got through absolutely fine. Now, I, I definitely did too much preparation, but I actually think that isn't a bad thing. I think it really helped me get a grip on what, I, on what was in my thesis, on what the main ideas were, and it gave me some thing to do to distract myself from getting nervous in the weeks running up to the to the viva and i definitely said things in my viva that only occurred to me while i was doing the preparation um so i i yeah i think i did too much prep and i don't regret it and i suppose that's my advice is, uh, is don't, don't worry too much if you if you feel like you're over preparing a few people told me i was over preparing and i sort of agree with them but i think it was useful brilliant Peter, thank you very much for talking to us today and for sharing your story. Yes, that's quite right. That's all for episode 23. Many thanks to Peter for joining us today and to you for listening. If you've got any comments or questions about this or any episode, then please leave us a comment uh, on, the, on the website or tweet at Viva Survivors or at Dr. Ryder. Or you can email podcast at viva-survivors.com, particularly if you'd like to be featured in a future episode of the podcast. Until next time, I'm Nathan Ryder, and thanks for listening.